Welcome to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast, a faith community on Vancouver Island within the Anglican Network in Canada. We invite you to check out our website at ChristchurchOceanside.ca, or if you're on Vancouver Island, join us on a Sunday in the News Bay. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor, Father Ryan Matchett. We hope you enjoy. Bless you. again from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 7, beginning in verse 12 to the end of 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to you, Lord Christ. Well, as you can tell today, we are going to continue our series here on the Golden Rule at the Christ Church Oceanside podcast. Now, last week we covered some really big stuff. And to be honest, I think it's been sitting heavy in our minds for a lot of us. And so I want to kind of take a day to, to kind of really debrief this and look to the gospel to see how exactly Jesus makes this possible. Because... What happened last week is Jesus helped us begin to reestablish our moral compass by stoking our true desires. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The invitation is to tap into our long-held ideals of how we wish to be treated and turn those ideals towards others. Because we all know the difference between good and evil when it comes to discerning what we wish from others. This emphasis saves us from the moral ambiguity, the double standard that we tend to have when it comes to determining how we treat others. Consequently, we experience then Jesus recovering and resurfacing our relationship with our own consciences. This was honestly something I didn't see coming. I now see, though, that my conscience is that part of my heart and soul that remains always in touch with my ideals. My ideals are echoes of Eden, reverberating throughout time, that my ideals are tied to the divine, that God has sown them into me. 
So I know what I truly wish for. I know what I really long for. I long for Eden. And my true desires beg me not to betray that dream. Building instead the life and the relationships, the institutions and the worlds I hate. My conscience is begging me not to make that world anymore. Because my conscience is the uncompromising conviction of righteous desire. My conscience is always saying, Ryan, don't give up on the dream. Don't do this now. We know it's not what we long for. That how we feel about and think about and treat others would contribute to goodness and life and beauty and redemption. That's what our conscience is trying to push us towards, the true ideal. So my hope would be, having following, like following last week, that we would have gained some contact, if not yet fully grasped, two things. Our compass, the golden rule, and our conscience. So we're, we're, we're getting in touch with those things again, even though we may not have fully grasped them yet. This week, we keep going in the text. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Here is where wishes and ideals meet reality and real people. So the question that we have to ask as we move forward is that we've received from Jesus this crazy high standard. But how do we do it for real? How do we do it genuinely? How is it possible? Someone actually said to me following our Sunday service, you're raising the bar so high. First of all, it's not me. We're just trying to rightly represent Jesus' words. But as we wrestle with the golden rule, we find that the idea that you can be a moral person without Jesus is really impossible. Because if we're honest about what we hold to as good, as that ideal within us, we realize, I can't pull that off. So my morals are just theoretical. They're not actually doable, possible. I am so far away from that. Jesus reveals God's vision of goodness, righteousness, which in turn reveals our fallen state. And I know simultaneously that I was made for this level of goodness, but can no longer live up to it. And so God's provision of salvation in and through Jesus is also revealed. This is the good news. <laughs> when Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, what we're seeing then is that he endeavors to raise the definitions of goodness to the absolute highest level, which is God's level, and then achieves it to its highest possible extent as a human being. 
And the purpose of this is, is in part, firstly, of course, to please God. It gives God joy to see righteousness achieved in humanity through Jesus. But also, Jesus' accomplishment of it is for the sake of imputing or giving it, putting it into that righteousness into us. And this has so many different impacts. Obviously, it changes the way God looks at us. He has seen perfection in Jesus clothed upon us. He's seen righteousness. So God's enjoyment of us skyrockets as Jesus' righteousness is enough for all of humanity. But it's also to make us able. To make us able to do the goodness that we could not do in our own strength. To make the ideal no longer impossible, but potential. So where all of this begins, I think, as we walk through the gospel to think about this subject a little bit today, where this begins for me is this, is that my ideal of how I would like to be treated, my wish, is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus himself. That's what I found in him. That what I ultimately and deeply desire for how I wish to be treated by others, Jesus perfectly and abundantly does that. His love for me, his sacrifice for me, is the ultimate fulfillment of my desire. And we will not be able to love others to this degree without first knowing deeply, truly, experientially the love of Christ for us like that. And as I was reflecting on this, it's interesting the connection between a desire to live good, to live well, to live for goodness, and the need for daily prayer it becomes so essential, as essential as breathing or eating, when you're seeking to live a life of true goodness. Because here's the reality. To hold to your standard, your ideal, you know what ends up happening? We go bankrupt real quick. Like spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, financially, you kind of go bankrupt, meaning you give everything you've got because what are, we're striving for the ideal in a good way. We're saying, this is what true goodness is. This is how I want to treat people. This is how I want to live and how I want to be. And you know what happens is you, you spend it all. You realize everything I had on me is gone. Everything I had emotionally, everything, all the energy I had mentally, all the wisdom, all the thought, all the energy I had and strength I had physically, and all the wealth that I had, I'm giving it away wherever I possibly can. I'm living holistically, generously. But that ends up being tired, being spent, being worn out. And so it makes sense then why we're meant to begin and end each day with Jesus, with this fundamental wish fulfilled. 
the deep desires. The grace is like the manna in the Exodus journey. If you hoard it, it will go bad. But if you spend it, if you eat it, if you use it, if you give it away, then that's the right way to live, is that you're pursuing goodness always. Because goodness is fun. Goodness is joyous. And so to live this way necessitates that we're receiving intentionally, seriously, and desperately. That when you're worn out at the end of the day, we tend to go, oh, I suck because I feel so bad or I'm so tired. But the reality is that's just your need to receive more because you spent it. You spent what you had and you're meant to, and that's good. But if you know the journey of like trying to cultivate a life of prayer and love for the scriptures, you know that it can actually be quite difficult to do that. I wonder if that's because we're living with too low of a vision of goodness. If our ideal or our functional standard, our moral compass, is lower than the golden rule, then when we go to prayer and to the scriptures, if we're not coming rightly because we've been hoarding energies. But if you're really desperate to go, in order to do the next good thing, I need Jesus badly, boy, does that ever light a fire in your prayer life. Because it's you're coming at it rightly going, I'm desperate. I need God. I know what I need to do the next good thing, and I know it's Jesus. That's a different, more vibrant prayer life. So how do we then actually get to doing this good work? I think really the work begins here. So obviously, we need a well to drink from, we need food, we need resources, so we need a prayer life. We need to have fellowship with Christ in order to have something to give away. So I just wanted to state that. But when we're living that life and we're in the day-to-day, the first step really comes down to needing salvation from our selfish leanings, our selfish inclinations. So the way change happens is we begin by recognizing how we're naturally treating others. Is my natural sense towards others to say, be competitive with them? Do I find that I am I have a bent towards being defensive towards other people, that somehow everyone around me is a threat And so I have a more defensive posture towards them. Maybe I have a need for justice or fairness. And so because of that, I'm recreating the painful treatment that I've received from others. If I had to go through this, then you have to go through this. Or am I just given to a self-preservation? Where it's always like I... I can't let go of anything. I need to be first. I need to be in front. I need to get because I'm trying to survive. Are these the natural tendencies that I have? And these are important questions to ask. Like, how am I treating others that I work with? How do I treat my employees? 
Do I pay my employees the way I wish my bosses paid me? Do I respond to the faults of my peers or others the way I want my faults to be treated? Am I just generally impatient or angry where anyone else in the world impacts me? These are the types of selfish inclinations that we want to find because we know we don't want to be treated that way. We don't want others to treat us in those threatening ways or defensive ways or angry ways or selfish ways. We want a mutuality with others. We want love with others. So the first thing I want to recognize is when my treatment of others doesn't match up to my ideal of how I want to be treated. Once I can recognize that, oh, there's that selfish inclination again. Then I need to see it as, because of the gospel, an invitation to be loved by God in that spot. That's the very place within me that is needing, is deficient from the love of God. So it needs to know the love of God. It needs to receive the love of God. So becoming aware of those deficiencies It goes against, though, our natural proclivities. We don't want to see what's wrong with us. We don't want to see our disappointments. We don't want to see our shortcomings. But we actually need to because that's the place that God's intending to love us. So that part of my heart that is responsible for selfishness or maybe a double standard with others is the place that needs fulfilling love. So then, confession and repentance, it becomes an identification of the stage or the altar upon which the Son is given. So there's the place that I received the love of the Father. So by saying, I recognize I treated this person poorly, I'm recognizing that part of me needs to be treated well in the gospel. And then with it, the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment of that part of my heart goes away and is filled with love. There, I'm remade. And this is the well that gets poured out upon others. Without this salvation experience in that spot, the good will try to pour out upon others from a self-source instead of a God-source. So what we want to be able to do is recognize, here's some selfishness. I repent of that. I confess. I receive the cross of Jesus to save me from this sin and this selfishness. I'm one with Christ upon his cross. Then a movement is taking place. We're not going to will our way into change. What we'll end up with is the same results or veneers of kindness, while beneath the surface the selfishness is turning to resentment. Resentment of others that they need so much from us. Resentment from others that they don't treat us better. Resentment turns to hatred, and hatred eventually comes out 
in word and action. But this process of recognition of selfishness, repentance of selfishness, forgiveness from God through Christ and his cross for our selfishness leads to a remaking then in the resurrection. In the resurrection, we clearly identify the love that we wish to be able to express. So say, if you could do that situation over again, how would you want to do it? Those expressions of love and kindness, that generosity that you're looking for, you are to receive that directly from Jesus in his resurrection. His righteous character and personality, and ability to love, and express, and to care, and be generous, and to hold things loosely. You can't do that on your own. You need that from Jesus. This empowers us into generosity. And this generosity that we give to others is meant to be the generosity we experience from the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. So the generosity we show others is a combination of what we have already experienced in Jesus. We know the self-revelation of God. We know his humility and coming in flesh. We know his love enough to die upon the cross. We're receiving that. We know it. We feel that forgiveness. But the next stage of resurrection is very progressive. So feeling the energy to do good, feeling the ability to do the love we want to, feeling the tact and wisdom of how to do that, that takes progress. But because we recognize that we're able to say the generosity that we give to others comes from the generosity we've experienced from God, but it also comes from the generosity we have yet to experience from God. But we know it awaits us. It might come tomorrow, and it, we know it'll come in eternity. So we're not afraid to give our last or our little, because we know there is always more coming. This means that our treatment of others is one part convictional. Even when we don't feel up to it, we try to live up to the golden standard. But it's also Another part, progressive, meaning it's growing and developing as we receive Christ. And we know that ultimately it's going to be abundant because we're going to seek to go beyond what is deemed conventional because we're, we're sick. We're sick of more of the same. We're sick of the low standards of this world. We're signing up for the golden rule. So we're going beyond, wherever possible and appropriate. So hear me, I'm not saying that it's this like ridiculous way of living where it's like, what's in our bank account today? Give it all. What we're looking for is opportunities to go, here's the normal amount to give. How can we show more? Maybe it's emotionally. Maybe it's mentally by engaging in something that's going on. Maybe it's adding physical energy and strength, but also going beyond in generosity. But these are difficult times, and I understand that there's going to be wrestle. For me, it's always been 
um, a conviction of mine to tip as well as possible. You hear the horror stories of churches emptying out on a Sunday and filling all the local restaurants and then not tipping. Oh, what a terrible expression of the faith. For the golden rule to be held is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and then to slip. I've even heard of cases of fake money that on the other side have a tract saying, you don't need this money, you need Jesus. What a terrible representation of the heart of Christ. It's actually antichrist. The true representation is to go, how can I bless you more? How can I love you more? But we also live in a time which is like crazy tip inflation, where anything less than 25% is somehow now become rude. That puts some of us in a difficult spot who can't afford to eat out in the first place. So I realize there's discernment in this process, but what we're looking for is what's the highest good and how can I pursue it? How can I live for Jesus' level of golden goodness? So the empowerment of generosity that comes in Jesus is convictional, a standard that we hold to even when we don't feel up for it, but it's progressive, knowing that we're growing always by receiving more of Jesus, and that it's abundant. We're not playing by the rules of this world anymore because we're heirs of the kingdom. What this does, though, is sets us up to then how we deal with the world is knowing that Jesus is ever equipping us, ever empowering and being generous towards us through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So we can then interact with others the way Christ has interacted with us. So we are called in the golden rule to live as little Christs. Not that we are doing the saving, but that we are following in his likeness. We are Christians. This is the whole point. If we're going to be true followers of Jesus, if we're going to be Christians, then it must be after the pattern of Christ. So the goal that we're seeking then is not just to show worldly or practical um, abundance. We're also ultimately seeking to walk a redemptive pattern in the lives of others. That we would seek to understand other people the way in which Christ has understood us. That we would know there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is feelings of pity or sorrow for someone. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of others, that we become part of them. We suffer with them. We know their story. We know their hearts. We're part of their lives. And then a willingness like Christ was towards us to suffer and sacrifice, to enter into the mess and chaos of others, to patiently withstand the impact of their screw-ups and their sins. And in the hope of unearthing roots and ways and patterns of destruction, we might say this way of living doesn't have to be your way anymore. 
and to give them what we wish for. Knowing that we have inexhaustible wealth in Christ, that we would resource others, lift them up higher than we found them, honor them, respect them, enjoy them, and bless them. That we as Christians would truly live with the generosity that Christ has shown us. Peter Morin had a great quote that I saw the other day on Twitter. He said, we have a high standard of living that has taken the place of a high standard of loving. This is anti-Christian. A high standard of living has now taken the place of a high standard of loving. We have got to shift that balance back the other way. We cannot prioritize a high standard of living at the expense of our standard of loving. Jesus, in the golden rule, is calling us to live for a greater good, a higher good that's only made possible through union with Jesus. A love like this from the church to the world reveals the love of God and gives them a foretaste of heaven on earth. So as much as we look at the golden rule and think, how is this possible? The easy answer is it's not. But for the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So what it does is it always necessitates more of us receiving more of Jesus, and seeking to give more of us and more of Jesus away to the world. This is the good way. This is the way of Jesus. This is on offer to you and to me if we receive him afresh. So my hope brothers, sisters, friends, is that this leads you to more of Jesus, to more good in the world, and a hastening of the world with no end. Amen.